Section 4 of The Art of Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Scott, Cheltenham, England. The Art of Letters by Robert Lind. For John Donne. Part 1. Isaac Walton, in his short Life of Donne, has painted a figure of almost seraphic beauty. When Donne was but a boy, he declares, it was said that the age had brought forth another Pico della Mirandola. As a young man in his twenties, he was a prince among lovers, who by his secret marriage with his patron's niece, for love, says Walton, is a flattering mischief, purchased at first only the ruin of his hopes and a term in prison. Finally, we have the later done, in the pulpit of St. Paul's, represented in a beautiful adaptation of one of his own images, as always preaching to himself like an angel from a cloud, though in none, carrying some, as St. Paul was, to heaven in holy raptures, and enticing others by a sacred art and courtship to amend their lives. The picture is all of noble charm. Walton speaks in one place of his winning behaviour, which, when it would entice, had a strange kind of elegant, irresistible art. There are no harsh phrases, even in the references to those irregularities of Dunn's youth, by which he had wasted the fortune of three thousand pounds, equal, I believe, to more than thirty thousand pounds of our money, bequeathed to him by his father, the ironmonger. Mr. Dunn's estate, writes Walton gently, referring to his penury at the time of his marriage, was the greatest part spent in many unchargeable travels, books, and dear-bought experience. It is true that he quotes Dunn's own confession of the irregularities of his early life, but he counts them of no significance. He also utters a sober reproof of Dunn's secret marriage as the remarkable error of his life. But how little he condemned it in his heart is clear when he goes on to tell us that God blessed Dunn and his wife with so mutual and cordial affections as in the midst of their sufferings made their bread of sorrow taste more pleasantly than the banquets of dull and low-spirited people. It was not for Walton to go in search of small blemishes in him whom he regarded as the wonder of the world, him whose grave mournful friends strewed with an abundance of curious and costly flowers, as Alexander the Great strewed the grave of the famous Achilles. In that grave there was buried for Walton a whole age magnificent with wit, passion, adventure, piety and beauty. More than that, the burial of Dunn was for him the burial of an inimitable Christian. He mourns over that body which once was a temple of the Holy Ghost and is now become a small quantity of Christian dust, and, as he mourns, he breaks off with the fervent prophecy, But I shall see it reanimated. That is his valediction. If Donne is esteemed three hundred years after his death less as a great Christian than as a great pagan, this is because we now look for him in his writings rather than in his biography, 
in his poetry rather than in his prose and in his songs and sonnets and elegies rather than in his divine poems we find in some of these abundant evidence of the existence of a dark angel at odds with the good angel of walton's raptures Donne suffered in his youth all the temptations of faust his thirst was not for salvation but for experience experience of the intellect and experience of sensation he has left it on record in one of his letters that he was a victim at one period of the worse voluptuousness an hydroptic immoderate desire of human learning and languages faust in his cell can hardly have been a more insatiate student than Donne. in the most unsettled days of his youth walton tells us his bed was not able to detain him beyond the hour of four in the morning and it was no common business that drew him out of his chamber till past ten all which time was employed in study though he took great liberty after it his thoroughness of study may be judged from the fact that he left the resultants of one thousand four hundred authors most of them abridged and analysed with his own hand but we need not go beyond his poems for proof of the wilderness of learning that he had made his own he was versed in medicine and the law as well as in theology he subdued astronomy physiology and geography to the needs of poetry nine muses were not enough for him even though they included urania he called into their aid galen and copernicus he did not go to the hills and the springs for his images but to the laboratory and the library and in the library the books that he consulted to the greatest effect were the works of men of science and learning not of the great poets with whom london may almost be said to have been peopled during his lifetime i do not think his verse or correspondence contains a single reference to shakespeare whose contemporary he was being born only nine years later the only great elizabethan poet whom he seems to have regarded with interest and even friendship was ben jonson jonson's catholicism may have been a link between them but more important than that jonson was like dunn himself an inflamed pedant for each of them learning was the necessary robe of genius jonson it is true was a pedant of the classics dunn of the speculative sciences but both of them alike ate to a surfeit of the fruit of the tree of knowledge it was i think because dunn was to so great a degree a pagan of the renaissance loving the proud things of the intellect more than the treasures of the humble that he found it easy to abandon the catholicism of his family for protestantism he undoubtedly became in later life a convinced and passionate christian of the protestant faith but at the time when he first changed his religion he had none of the fanaticism of the pious convert he wrote in an early satire as a man whom the intellect had liberated from dogma worship nor did he ever lose this rationalist tolerance you know he once wrote to a friend i have never imprisoned the word religion they the churches are all virtual beams of one sun few converts in those days of the wars of religion wrote with such wise reason of the creeds as did dunn in the lines to adore or scorn an image or protest may all be bad doubt wisely in strange way to stand inquiring right is not to stray 
to sleep or run wrong is on a huge hill cragged and steep truth stands and he that will reach her about must and about must go and what the hill's suddenness resists win so this surely was the heresy of an inquisitive mind not the mood of a theologian it betrays a tolerance springing from ardent doubt not from ardent faith it is all in keeping with one's impression of the young dun as a man setting out bravely in his cockle shell on the oceans of knowledge and experience he travels though he knows not why he travels he loves though he knows not why he loves he must escape from that hydroptic immoderate thirst of experience by yielding to it one fancies that it was in this spirit that he joined the expedition of essex to cadiz in fifteen ninety six and afterwards sailed to the azores or partly in this spirit for he himself leads one to think that his love affairs may have had something to do with it in the second of those prematurely realistic descriptions of storm and calm relating to the azores voyage he writes whether a rotten state and hope of gain or to disuse me from the queasy pain of being beloved and loving or the thirst of honour or fair death outpushed me first in these lines we get a glimpse of the dun that has attracted most interest in recent years the dun who experienced more variously than any other poet of his time the queasy pain of being beloved and loving dun was curious of adventures of many kinds but in nothing more than in love as a youth he leaves the impression of having been an odysseus of love a man of many wiles and many travels he was a virile neurotic comparable in some points to baudelaire who was a sensualist of the mind even more than of the body his sensibilities were different as well as less of a piece but he had something of baudelaire's taste for hideous and shocking aspects of lust one is not surprised to find among his poems that heroical epistle of sappho to philanus in which he makes himself the casuist of forbidden things his studies of sensuality however are for the most part normal even in their grossness there was in him more of the yahoo than of the decadent there was an excremental element in his genius as in the genius of that other gloomy dean jonathan swift dunn and swift were alike satirists born under saturn they laughed more frequently from disillusion than from happiness dunn it must be admitted turned his disillusion to charming as well as hideous uses go and catch a falling star is but one of a series of delightful lyrics in disparagement of women in several of the elegies however he throws away his lute and comes to the satirist's more prosaic business he writes frankly as a man in search of bodily experiences whoever loves if he do not propose the right true end of love he's one that goes to sea for nothing but to make him sick in love progress he lets his fancy dwell on the detailed geography of a woman's body with the sick imagination of a schoolboy till the beautiful seems almost beastly in the anagram and the comparison he plays the yahoo at the expense of all women by the similes he uses in insulting two of them 
in the perfume he relates the story of an intrigue with a girl whose father discovered his presence in the house as a result of his using scent dunn's jest about it is suggestive of his uncontrollable passion for ugliness had it been some bad smell he would have thought that his own feet or breath that smell had brought it may be contended that in the perfume he was describing an imaginary experience and indeed we have his own words on record i did best when i had least truth for my subjects but even if we did not accept mr gosse's common-sense explanation of these words we should feel that the details of the story have a vividness that springs straight from reality it is difficult to believe that dunn had not actually lived in terror of the gigantic manservant who was set to spy on the lovers the grim eight-foot-high iron-bound serving man that oft names god in oaths and only then he that to bar the first gate doth as wide as the great rhodian colossus stride which if in hell no other pains there were makes me fear hell because he must be there but the most interesting of all the sensual intrigues of dunn from the point of view of biography especially since mr gosse gave it such commanding significance in that life of john dunn in which he made a living man out of a mummy is that of which we have the story in jealousy and his parting from her it is another story of furtive and forbidden love its theme is an intrigue carried on under a husband's towering eyes that flamed with oily sweat of jealousy a characteristic touch of grimness is added to the story by making the husband a deformed man dunn however merely laughs at his deformity as he bids the lady laugh at the jealousy that reduces her to tears oh give him many thanks he is courteous that in suspecting kindly warneth us we must not as we used flout openly in scoffing riddles his deformity nor at his board together being set with words nor touch scarce looks adulterate and he proposes that now that the husband seems to have discovered them they shall henceforth carry on their intrigue at some distance from where he swollen and pampered with great fare sits down and snorts caged in his basket chair it is an extraordinary story if it is true it throws a scarcely less extraordinary light on the nature of dunn's mind if he invented it at the same time i do not think the events it relates played the important part which mr gosse assigns to them in dunn's spiritual biography it is impossible to read mr gosse's two volumes without getting the impression that the deplorable but eventful liaison as he calls it was the most fruitful occurrence in dunn's life as a poet he discovers traces of it in one great poem after another even in the nocturnal upon st lucy's day which is commonly supposed to relate to the countess of bedford and in the funeral the theme of which professor grierson takes to be the mother of george herbert i confess that the oftener i read the poetry of dunn the more firmly i become convinced that far from being primarily the poet of desire gratified and satiated he is essentially the poet of frustrated love he is often described by the historians of literature 
as the poet who finally broke down the tradition of platonic love i believe that so far is this from being the case he is the supreme example of a platonic lover among the english poets he was usually platonic under protest but at other times exultantly so whether he finally overcame the more consistent platonism of his mistress by the impassioned logic of the ecstasy we have no means of knowing if he did it would be difficult to resist the conclusion that the lady who wished to continue to be his passionate friend and to ignore the physical side of love was anne moore whom he afterwards married if not we may look for her where we will whether in magdalene herbert already a young widow who had borne ten children when he first met her or in the countess of bedford or in another the name is not important and one is not concerned to know it especially when one remembers dunn's alarming curse on whoever guesses thinks or dreams he knows who is my mistress End of section four.